Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 24. And we are looking at verses 24 through 27 this morning. Chapter 24, verses 24 through 27. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Thus ends our reading of God's salvific word. May all who hear it understand the opportunity that God has granted to them. Back when I was at the University of Michigan as a student, I, I had this friend who, who communicated to me that she wanted to experience all that college life had to offer. That meant going to parties. That meant trying new things. That meant dating guys and having fun. It meant casting off the values that she once professed to have. You see, I, I had known this person since she was in eighth grade. And I knew that she grew up in a Christian home, that, that her parents had raised her with a, a different set of values. And, and so I challenged her on her new lifestyle. I asked her if she still believed in Jesus and if she'd be willing to hear the gospel. But when I brought up Jesus with her, she, she simply wouldn't hear it. She said that she wanted to enjoy her life and to not think about God, at least for the time being. She, she told me that there would be time for that later. That perhaps once she had gotten married and had kids, well, well then she would start thinking about God. But for the moment, she just wanted to use the days of her youth to party and to have fun. In our passage today, we, we see a man who had a different yet similar attitude when it came to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Governor Felix had been given personal access to the, the message of God's salvation, and yet that message frightened him. And so he decided to, to, to push, push that message to the side until a more opportune time came about. And yet what we'll discover is that God has his own timing, especially when it comes to his gospel message, and that we can't put on him our timetable. 
Now, now before we get into our text, let's, let's do a, a quick review so that we can understand how this man, how Governor Felix got to the position that he was in. If you remember, last week we, we saw that the Apostle Paul was on trial before this governor because of, uh, of a plot that the, the Jews had made to take Paul's life. Paul had been delivered to Felix in order that he might stand trial in Caesarea. And, and if you remember, when, when, when Paul's accusers had arrived, what did they do? They, they made this case that, that Paul was guilty of acts of sedition against Rome. And yet Paul, what did he do? He, did, he was able to defend himself. He had, he had proved that, that these charges that these Jewish leaders had, had laid against him, well, they had to do more with religious differences rather than seditious acts against the Roman Empire. And so Felix, this governor, he had a decision to make. Would he convict Paul, this, this Roman citizen who had just proven that he was innocent, would, would, he, would he cave to the pressure that was coming from the Jewish high priest and from the religious elite, would he convict this man, sentence him to death, or would he be on the side of true justice and acquit the Apostle Paul of all charges? Well, Governor Felix did what every true politician does. He did nothing. He decided to delay his decision for a later day. And this meant that Paul would remain in custody until that decision could be decided. Now, why did Felix do this? Why wouldn't he just come up with a verdict one way or another and be done with it? Well, it's because Felix was a coward. He, he was a man who was afraid. He lived in the fear of man. You see, he knew what the right decision was. And yet because of his fear of man, he chose the path of least resistance. He, he didn't want to create enemies Enemies with those who had sway over the people of Jerusalem, the people whom he ruled. And yet at the same time, he, did, he didn't want to upset the Christians either. This flourishing religious movement that, that at the rate that they were growing would, could someday become the dominant religion in all of Jerusalem. And so he would keep Paul behind bars, at least for the time being. And yet what Felix didn't realize was that this non-decision of his would lead to another fork in his road. With Paul being in the governor's house, Felix would be challenged time and time again with the gospel message. In fact, for the next two years, Felix would, would have an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus living in his own household. Can you imagine that? But the question remained, when faced with the message of Christ's kingdom, when faced with the reality that Jesus is king, would Felix continue to act as a coward? Or would he finally man up and make the right decision? Well, let's find out. Look at, look at our first verse. Look at verse 24. 
After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, now this seems like a promising start, doesn't it? And here we see Felix asking Paul to come to him. Felix was the one who wanted to hear more about this Jesus. Now, now, is this of his own prompting, or does this have more to do with his wife, Drusilla? I, I don't know. We can't be certain. But perhaps if we learn a little bit about the history of these two, we might come to a clearer understanding of why they would want to meet with Paul in the first place. Now, from the previous weeks, we already know some things about Felix. We, we, we know that he was once a slave from Cilicia, and yet he had received his freedom from, from Caesar himself, from, from the emperor Claudius. But not only that, but, but then Claudius had appointed this man to become the governor of Judea. So, and so this Felix, he was really a, a, a rags-to-riches type of story. He had experienced both the lowly life of a servant and, and he had wielded the, the immense authority of a governor. I mean, talk about a turn of good fortune. But what do we know about this man's wife? What do, what do we know about Drusilla? Well, Luke tells us that she was a Jew. We also know from, his, from the history books that she was the daughter of King Herod Agrippa I, the, the same Herod who had James martyred, the, the, the same Herod who had imprisoned Peter, the, the same Herod who, who allowed people to worship him as a god right before the true God took his life. Drusilla was that man's daughter. And so she grew up knowing privilege. And yet because her dad was a Jewish king of sorts, she was raised in the Jewish religion as well. And so she knew the, the ins and outs of the Jewish faith, as well as all the Jewish customs that made her people unique. But was she a faithful Jew? Again, that's hard to say. But we know that her father, we know that her grandfather, they were both tyrannical men, consumed with power and lacking a fear of God. Certainly some of these traits would have rubbed off on her as well. Perhaps she too lacked any fear of the Lord. In fact, this could be seen in her marriage you see, before she was married to Felix, she was actually married to another man, to, to King Azizus of Emesa. And yet when she met Felix, her heart desired for him. She had been seduced by Felix's charm, and, and she chose to leave her husband and marry a different man. Now, to me, that doesn't sound like a faithful Jewish woman, does it? And so these are the two whom Paul was now dealing with. The, 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 the royal Jewish daughter of a wicked king and a governor who had no scruples. A man willing to defile the marriage bed by stealing another man's wife. 
And yet now here they were, wanting to hear about Paul's faith in Jesus Christ. Now, now if you would have asked me, who, who would you expect to, to want to hear about faith in Jesus Christ? A, a couple like Drusilla and, and Felix would, would not have been the couple that I would have chosen. They would not have been at the top of my list. But that's exactly what they were doing. They, they were inviting Paul to share the gospel with them. I, I think that all too often we as Christians allow our, our preconceived notions to determine whom we do and do not speak to about Jesus Christ. We, we, we say to ourselves, Cer- certainly he or, or certainly she would have too hard of a heart. There's just too much of a, of a gap for them to, to jump over. And yet, what do we see in our passage? Felix and, and Drusilla asking Paul to come to them. Paul, tell us about this Jesus. I mean, Paul wasn't even initiating the conversation. Who, who are the people in your own life? whom you would think would be the last to believe in Jesus. Have you ever tried to approach them to to see if they would be interested in hearing about your faith? Are, Are you willing to ask them? You might be surprised by the answer you get. And listen, listen, the call of Christ, what is the call of Christ? It is for us to go to all peoples. Not to some, but to all. Not just the ones whom we think will be willing to hear about it. And that's because we're not God. We don't know a person's heart. Perhaps they are desiring to know more about this Jesus. And yet they have never been approached because nobody thinks that they would be interested. Dear friends, I I hope that this is never our attitude when it comes to to the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus has called us to share this message with everyone. When Paul was summoned to Felix and Drusilla, he was ready and willing. But what did he communicate to this couple? What did he say to them? Look, 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 at, look at the first portion of verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Now, now, typically, when we think of the gospel message, when we think about explaining our faith in Jesus Christ, we, we tend to think of it as a message of, of forgiveness and hope. And, and the gospel is that message. And yet, what Paul was communicating focused on three other categories. Categories that, that perhaps wouldn't be our first choice when proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Righteousness self-control, and the coming judgment. So so what are these things about? And why did Paul focus on those three categories? 
Well, let's let's see those what those categories are, and let's and perhaps that will shed some light into Paul's strategy. First, the category of righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, righteousness deals with God's justice. It is God's judgment over mankind for every decision that mankind makes. It is about the standards that God has established and set forth. Standards that we are to obey as his creation. You see, here's, here's what you got to understand. Both, both Felix and Drusilla already had a knowledge of the one true God. Drusilla, being a Jew, would have understood that, that, that the Old Testament scriptures was God's word. And that the sacrificial system that God had established at the temple, well, that was a system of atonement for her people. And so she would have known that, that God's justice needed to be satisfied, either through obedience to the law or through the substitutionary atonements that came through the animal sacrifices that God had already established with her people. I mean, bottom line, Drusilla knew that God's wrath needed to be appeased. And Felix, her husband, he, he would have known as well, for he had been the governor over these people for five years. Plus, he was married to a Jew. And so he would have known these things. And yet, when Paul spoke of righteousness particularly as it related to his faith in Jesus Christ, well, what was he talking about? He was describing how Jesus is the only true substitutionary atonement that is actually pleasing to God. That the blood of animals was not sufficient, not sufficient to create true justice in the eyes of the Lord. Not sufficient to make a man righteous. To make a man justified. Only through the blood of Christ can God's wrath be appeased. And I'm sure Paul then took them to God's word. Most likely to the book of Isaiah, to God's suffering servant. He probably explained how this Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled this scripture. That as God's suffering servant, he poured out his own blood. A blood that was better than the blood of bulls and goats. Look, look at Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 11. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had, he had no form of majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Now, every time I read this scripture, it amazes me. The, the fact that it was written some 600 years prior to Jesus walking this earth, I mean, I find that incredible. For it describes to a T not only what Jesus did, but why he did it. And, and what do we see? That it is through this suffering servant, that it is through the death of Jesus Christ, that God's wrath, his wrath towards our sins, is satisfied. I mean, that's just amazing, isn't it? Bottom line, when it, when it comes to God's righteousness, when it comes to, to being justified in God's eyes... No one can accomplish this apart from Christ. Because of our sin, we are declared guilty. And it doesn't matter how many animals you slaughter, for there will never be enough blood to pay for all the sins that you have committed. And yet, through the blood of Jesus Christ, all of your sins can be covered. All of them. And that's because Jesus is the true spotless Lamb of God. He lived the righteous life that you could not. And because He is God incarnate, because He is God in human flesh, well then His sacrifice is of infinite worth. That is how He could make, make the many to be accounted as righteous. That is how he could bear all of their iniquities. And so when Paul spoke of righteousness, he, he was speaking about the righteousness that can only be found through the only begotten Son, through King Jesus. And this leads into Paul's second point. His second category of self-control. Again, what, what is this all about? 
Well, for most people living at that time, self-control or, or self-discipline was, was a trait that was to be commended, was to be lauded. I mean, consider the Greek Stoics of that time who, who, who viewed self-control as one of the highest qualities that a person could attain to. Or, or think of the Pharisees, right? And their obsession with, with maintaining a strict obedience to God's law. And they too viewed self-control as a praiseworthy trait. And both of these groups, they, they would have agreed that, that self-control can only be achieved through the mastery of one's will. And yet according to the Christian belief, self-control cannot be achieved by simply setting one's mind to accomplishing it. And that's because deep down, the Christian knows that we are steeped in sin. That, that in order for a person to, to truly change, they, they must receive a new heart. And so yes, just like the Stoics and, and just like the Pharisees, a person could, on the outside, appear to have self-control. And yet, inwardly, they could be rotten to the core. Jesus demonstrated this to us in his Sermon on the Mount. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to to the hell of fire. Or consider verses 27 and 28. You have, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, so what is Jesus saying here? What, what does he mean by all this? He means that it's not just about what we do, but it's about what we think and it's about what we feel as well. That it doesn't matter that, that, that you didn't act upon your anger, for you're still going to be judged for the hatred that you possess within, for the hatred that is stored within your heart. And it doesn't matter that you didn't commit adultery, that you didn't swoon over that, that woman who, who, who batted her eyes at you. But the fact that you even considered it, that demonstrates that deep down you are a lustful person. No, just because you show restraint doesn't mean that you are not sinning. For God knows the depths of your heart. And let's be honest. If the rest of the world could see what God sees well, then we would all be hiding our heads in shame. You see, what, what, what Jesus has taught us and, and what the Christian knows is that we are born into sin. That is who we are. We, we are not sinners because we sin. We, we, we sin because we are sinners. Think about it. There's a difference. And in our own strength, we cannot change that. And that is why we need Jesus. 
For it is only through his help, only by him sending to us his Holy Spirit, can we truly mortify sin. Can we, can we truly have self-control? So we've seen righteousness. We've seen self-control. And these two things leads into Paul's third category, the coming judgment. Here Paul was speaking of the day when Christ will return. And when he does, both the living and the dead will have to face judgment for every choice, for every thought that they have made. And unless they have received the righteousness of Christ through his substitutionary atonement, unless they have been given a new heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, well, then God will hold them accountable for every single sin, whether in thought or deed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says this, for we, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, now what is interesting about all this is that, is that Felix, he had sat in a position of judgment for five years. He was the governor over Judea. He had decided the fate of many, many people. Some he had put to death. Others he had set free. And yet his type of justice was whatever was expedient for himself. I mean, we just saw this in his decision, or rather his non-decision in Paul's trial, right? Right? And so justice for Felix had little to do with the truth, and yet it had much to do with the whims of the judge. And yet Christ's just, justice is true justice. It isn't based on selfish motives, nor is it based on political expediency. It is based on what is right and what is wrong. It is based on good and evil. There is no bribing the judge, nor is there tampering with the evidence. For Christ knows all and he sees all, and he will judge rightly. And here's the thing. Everyone, everyone will face his judgment. There is not one person who can escape. Not even the most powerful men in the world. Not even a man like Felix. And when you look at Felix's life, when you look at the life of his wife, Drusilla, well, there you had two people who were lacking in righteousness. And you had two people who were lacking in self-control. How would they fare when Christ returns? How would they be declared as righteous before a holy and living God? How could they demonstrate that they had self-control when Jesus knows their very thoughts? Listen, even though Paul was their prisoner, even though he was in a position of helplessness, Paul didn't hold anything back to these two. He gave to them the unashamed gospel. He confronted them with their sins, and he called them to repentance and to faith in Jesus. Jesus. 
How are you, O Felix? How are you, O Drusilla, going to be declared righteous before a holy and living God? Do you really think that you have enough self-control to live a perfect life? I know for a fact that you don't. For you have already defiled the marriage bed. And I know that you, O Felix, rule with an iron fist. You pervert justice for your own political ends. What will you do when Jesus returns? How will you stand before him when you are being judged? Will you be able to endure the gaze of King Jesus? Dear friends, these same exact questions could be asked of us, could they not? How will you stand when Christ returns? Are you going to rely on your own righteousness? Do you believe that you have enough self-control to live that perfect life? Or are you going to look to the righteousness of another? Will you ask for a new heart from the only one who can give it to you? Will you repent? Will you turn to Jesus before it is too late? How would this power couple respond to Paul's words? Look at, look at the end of verse 25. Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Felix was alarmed. Felix was alarmed. And he should have been alarmed. For Felix was the type of man who, who only lived for himself, for his own power, for his own wealth. The words that Paul had spoken to him, well, they struck a nerve, didn't they? And that's because deep down, Felix knew that they were true. Felix was not righteous. Felix had no self-control. And if Jesus were to return that day, Felix knew that he would be crushed under the, the heavy, heavy seat of of Christ's judgment. Listen, when, it's, when, when Luke says Felix was alarmed, Felix was terrified. And he was terrified because he was under conviction. And before him was a choice. Would he repent? Would he turn away from, from his wicked ways and look to Jesus, his true king? Or would he simply push the urgency of this matter aside and ignore Paul's warning? Would, would he delay what he knew he should do because the timing of it wasn't convenient? I mean, just as in Paul's trial where, where Felix chose to not do the right thing but to, but to kick the can down the road, so too here we, we, we see that, that Felix would not come to any decision. Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And so rather than repent and claim Jesus as his Lord, when his heart was under conviction, he simply sent Paul away. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives us this parable, a parable that warns people about his coming judgment. And in it, he, he speaks of those who, who believe that they have time when they really don't. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 through 51. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. My friend that I had told you about earlier, the one, the one who didn't want to worry about God while she was in college, well, she is now 47 years old. She has teenage children of her own. And yet she is no closer to understanding the truth about Jesus than when she was 18. And if Christ was to return today, she would not be seen as faithful. She would not be seen as wise because she would be relying on her own righteousness and on her own self-control. And why? Because she says to herself, my master is delayed. How many today hold to the same attitude? Choosing the path of least resistance. How, how many are lazy when it comes to the things of God? How, how many think to themselves that they have time? How, how tragic will it be when their time runs out? Felix believed that he had time. Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And what Felix failed to realize was that his moment was right then. If he didn't want Christ as Lord after Paul had given him the gospel, if he didn't want to be rescued from the coming judgment after Paul's words had alarmed him, well then why would he think that he would change his mind by simply shoving Christ to the side? God had shaken him to his core, and yet it, it wasn't enough. He, he viewed it as something he could just put off for another day. And in the end, that was his downfall. Look at, look at our last two verses in the book of Acts. Look at verses 26 and 27. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. 
Now, now imagine having the Apostle Paul at your beck and call for two straight years. I mean, what a tremendous opportunity. And yet that opportunity was simply wasted for what was Felix trying to do? He was looking for a bribe. He, he was hoping that Paul or, or maybe some of Paul's friends would pony up some money in order to gain his freedom. Yet Paul was faithful to Jesus. He, he knew that he was exactly where Christ wanted him to be. He didn't care about his freedom. No. What he cared about was serving his king. And yet Felix seemed to be driven by only one thing. His own selfish gain. Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The fear of God was no longer upon Felix. The warning that Paul had given, the, the message that had, had once alarmed him, had simply faded over time. And Felix's love for the things of this world, his love for money, was greater than the love for his own soul. And yet at the end of our story, at the end of his story, what do we see transpire? We discover that the world that Felix had, had built for himself had been taken away. You see, after two years of having the Apostle Paul living in his household, Governor Felix had been replaced by Governor Festus. And what is ironic is, is the reason why. Now, now Luke doesn't tell us this, but we know from, from ancient historians that, that Felix had abused his power so, so greatly that he had to be removed from office in order to face trial at Rome. You see, a dispute had, had arisen be, in, within the city of Caesarea between the Syrians and the Jews. And Felix saw this as an opportunity to murder and to plunder many of the inhabitants of his own city. I mean, talk about a lack of self-control. In, in fact, Felix was, he was so wicked that even Nero, who was the Roman emperor by then, Nero thought he was unfit to lead. And if Nero, the, the most tyrannical emperor that, that Rome had ever seen, if he thinks that you're unfit to lead, well, that's saying something. Here's the thing. God had given to Felix every opportunity to turn to him by placing his apostle within his home. But Felix wasted that opportunity by pushing off the decision that was before him. But our situation is no different. If you live in America, which you all do, then you have been given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to find salvation. I mean, there are churches seemingly around every corner. In Oxford alone, there, there are probably more than 30 of them. 
And granted, not all of them are going to be faithful to the gospel, but, but a lot of them are. But not only that, but you also have access to God's word like never before. I mean, not only is the Bible the number one selling book year in and year out, but it's been translated into your language numerous different times. And guess what? You can, you can just pick up your phone, download an app, and you have God's word right there. And now you're sitting here in a church. You just heard the gospel message presented to you clearly. And so just like Felix, you have no excuse. God has given to you every opportunity. And so if you are here today and you are not a believer, then I ask you, what are you waiting for? Don't put off for tomorrow what you can do today. Don't be foolish. Stop telling yourself, Some, someday I'm going to do it. When the time is more convenient. Listen, if you won't do it today, what makes you think that things are going to change tomorrow? Don't, don't be like my friend who, who's waiting for a more opportune season. The opportune season is right now. Consider Paul's words in his letter to the church in Corinth. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Dear friends, don't wait. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Run if you have to. Run to the cross of Christ as quickly as you can. For now is a favorable time. Now is a day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now knowing that in your sight, we are not righteous in our own merit. We know that no matter how much self-control we demonstrate, that it will never cover over our sinful hearts. And we know that on the day of your judgment, we will all fall short unless you rescue us. And that is why we need your son. That is why we need his righteousness. We need Jesus as our atoning sacrifice to cover over our sins. And we need your Holy Spirit. We need him to change us from within. We need him to give us a new heart, a heart that longs after you. 
Help us not to to delay. Help us to repent. Help us not to, to put off believing in your son. Rather, help us to see the urgency of these things. So that on the day of your judgment, we will not be found wanting. This can only be accomplished through the power of your spirit. And so we ask you to move within our hearts, even now, in this favorable time, in this day of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.